Griff from Canada. You're listening to the news on RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning and welcome back to Money Talk on Radio 3. I hope you had a great Easter. The time's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Tuesday the 19th of April. This is Peter Lewis with a catch-up of the latest business and finance headlines. China's first quarter GDP beat expectations, growing 4.8% year-on-year. That topped expectations of a 4.4% increase from a year ago and an improvement on the 4% annualised growth seen in the final quarter of 2021. However, retail sales in March fell by more than expected 3.5% from a year earlier. That's the first decline since July 2020 and down from 6.8% growth in combined figures for January and February. The Shanghai Commission of Economy and Information Technology has published plans for key industrial companies to resume operations in the city under the so-called closed-loop conditions where workers live on site and are tested regularly. The local government said it's targeting a lockdown turning point by April the 20th in which it wants zero COVID at the community level and no virus spread outside of quarantine areas by that date. The World Bank has slashed its global growth forecast to 3.2% from 4.1% because of the impact of the Ukraine war. The biggest contributor to the downward revision was a projected economic contraction of 4.1% across Europe and Central Asia. The Washington-based Development Bank warned of higher food and fuel costs being borne by consumers in developed economies and said it was preparing a new 15-month crisis response envelope of around 170 billion US dollars to help the poorest nations. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by James Wong at Leeds Securities and Quinton Webb from the Wall Street Journal. And with a view from Japan, it's Nick Smith of CLSA. Money Talk on RTHK. On Wall Street, all three major stock indices swung between small gains and losses on Easter Monday. The S&P 500 slipped less than 0.1% to close at 4,392. The Dow declined 40 points or 0.1% to 34,412. The Nasdaq Composite Index dropped 0.1% to 13,332. Shares of Twitter jumped 7.5% higher on continued takeover speculation, despite the company adopting a so-called poison pill provision on Friday, making it more difficult for Tesla CEO Elon Musk to increase his stake in the company. Last week, Mr. Musk unveiled an unsolicited uh, $43 billion US dollar bid to buy Twitter. The Nasdaq Golden Dragon Index of US-listed Chinese shares fell 2%. Stocks of Chinese ride-hailing firm Didi Global plunged over 18% after the firm announced it would hold an extraordinary general meeting to vote on whether to end its listing on the New York Stock Exchange. European markets were closed on Easter Monday. Markets here in Hong Kong were also closed for a public holiday. On the mainland, stocks fell to a one-week low yesterday following the GDP report. The Shanghai Composite fell half a percent to 3,196. There's been a lot of movement in the commodities markets over the past 24 hours. 
First of all, Brent crude oil rose 1% to $112.84 a barrel after Libya closed its biggest oil field due to protests and warned of further outages. U.S. natural gas surged 7% to a 13-year high. Gold has risen to the highest level in a month at $1,977 an ounce. And agricultural commodities are also rising because of the war in Ukraine. Corn futures jumped to a decade high of almost $8 a bushel. And wheat rose 2.6%. US government bonds, they fell again, sending the yield on the 10-year Treasury notes three basis points higher to 2.86%. That's its highest closing level since December 2018. And in the currency markets, the Japanese yen has fallen against the US dollar for the 12th consecutive day, and that's its longest losing streak in at least 50 years. The yen is down half a percent at 127.12 versus the dollar. Yesterday, Bank of Japan Governor Haruhiko Kuroda warned of very rapid moves in the currency, but vowed to keep adding monetary stimulus to the economy. The euro is at $1.08. Sterling is trading at $1.30 and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 20 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.38 in offshore markets. And Bitcoin is up half a percent in the past 24 hours to $40,800. Looking around the Asia-Pacific region as markets open this morning in Australia, the SX200 up about a quarter of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan uh, is up around 1%. The Cosby is up half a percent. And futures markets are pointing for a fall in the Hang Seng at the open of about 180 points. Much to talk about, and our guests are on the case this morning, so let's welcome them. We have with us James Wong, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Leeds Securities. Morning, James. Hello, James. Can you hear me? Yeah, good morning, Peter. Okay, morning, James. And also with us is Quinton Webb, uh, Asia Market Editor at the Wall Street Journal. Morning, Quinton. Good morning. Uh, Let's start then with uh, this GDP data. Uh, It beat expectations up on the mainland, grew 4.8% year on year. Uh, That's an improvement from the 4% growth seen in the final quarter of 2021. However, in other data, uh, retail sales in March fell by more than expected 3.5% from a year earlier. That's the first decline since July 2020, and that's down from 6.8% growth in January and February. Industrial production, that rose by 5%, beat the forecast for 4.5% growth, but was down from the first two months of the year. And also fixed asset investment on the mainland that rose by 9.3%, also beating expectations for 8.5% growth. The urban unemployment rate, which doesn't include the large number of migrant workers, that worsened in March to 5.8%, up from 5.5% in February, and now is the highest unemployment level since May 2020. And one other thing uh, to be aware of, on Friday, the PBOC reduced the amount of reserves that banks must maintain in an attempt to boost the economy. The central bank reduced the reserve requirement ratio by 25 basis points. That's to the lowest level since 2007. That releases about 553 billion yuan of liquidity. Um, Disappointed economists, though, they had been expecting a 50 basis point 
uh, cut. So, James, do you want to uh, kick off first? I mean, I suppose the key thing is it did beat expectations quite handily, doesn't it? But those March numbers, particularly for retail sales, suggesting there's going to be pain ahead. Oh, yes. It's, it's a positive surprise, actually. We, we've uh, seen what the later half of March has been, and this strong number coming uh, kind of boosted our confidence in the first two months uh, for the year. The January and uh, February numbers must be strong, but it matches what we've seen in the uh, credit market, the China credit impulse. We, uh, we saw a first uptick for the China credit impulse in November of last year, and then December, and then it picks up speed in January and February. So this is kind of a good sign, but the, uh, the manufacturing activities in March uh, actually kind of dropped uh, compared to the number we've seen in January and February, which which only makes sense because quite a few large cities, uh, including Shanghai, has been coming into a uh, lockdown because of the newest wave of Omicron outbreak. So um, uh, I, I think people are still watching what these, uh, this, this event is going to be uh, doing to the uh, economic activities uh, in China. From what I've heard, uh, what we are really worried about is the logistic chain and uh, the or the lack of it. Uh, we, we've seen the logistic capacity uh, reduced to its full operating power uh, by about 80% or more uh, in the last month. Um, uh, only, this is only in the uh, Yangtze River Delta area. So that, that that's a really big problem because uh, monetary policies aside, this is really about economy. And without logistics, no parts in the economy is going to move. And uh, we, we've seen some kind of improvement uh, or some kind of uh, loosening policies uh, from above. But I'm not really sure how this is going to carry it out uh, in the bottom. And uh, this is this is the biggest concern that we have right now for the economy going forward. Quentin, when, when I first saw these numbers, I struggled to get them to add up because we've seen in March, in effect, a 10 percentage point uh, decline in retail sales from where they were uh, the previous two months. And yet we see an increase overall in GDP compared to the final quarter of last year. It suggests if it is going to add up that actually manufacturing and exports must have been much, much stronger in January and February than anyone was really expecting. Right. There is some sort of raised eyebrows, if you like, among economists about how this number came together. Um, it was stronger than expected, and um, it doesn't necessarily correlate with some of the high-frequency data. You know, for example, uh, some of the PMI data looks very bad for March. Um, some of the property industry data um, looks worse if you look at the figures reported by the 100 biggest developers than the data reported at a national level by the Bureau of Statistics. So there is some sort of question mark, and of course this is not the first time we've had this, about whether this number is a truly accurate reflection of the Chinese economy as a whole. Um, but I would say probably for the investment community, what's more relevant here is how big of a downturn we're heading into in the second quarter, because as we all know, you know, many of the most serious lockdowns only really started to happen towards the end of March or into April. Um, and as James is pointing out as well, you know, what we're now starting to see is real 
difficulty in supply chains. And so, you know, if, if kind of auto production, for example, is severely disrupted, that's likely to have a major impact on the economy in the second quarter. So, yes, there is something uh, kind of hard to fathom in exactly how this um, print was so strong. And on top of that, you know, I think what's probably the bigger focus for the market is what happens to the economy uh, in the second quarter. Well, James, what that, what is going to happen? I mean, the uh, the Shanghai Commission of Economy and Information Technology is trying to get uh, these lockdowns lifted for certain uh, sectors. It says it wants to have zero COVID by tomorrow. Um, doesn't seem likely that's going to happen, does it? But also these these so-called closed loop conditions where workers basically live in their factories and are tested regularly. Is that really sustainable for too too long? Because it's not much different from being locked up in your home, is it really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, there's a news report out of out of some uh, the Chinese media outlets saying they've uh, deployed a, a drone and to oversee what's going on in the Tesla production sites in Shanghai. Uh, reportedly, there were some workers reporting back to the factory, and uh, uh, looks like they're going to start this closed loop uh, style of management inside the factory, but I don't know how many workers showed up, but uh, I think they are moving to the uh, right direction policy-wise. Uh, but uh, like like I said, the, the, the authorities have been acting really uh, fairly quickly uh, in terms of uh, handling this uh, zero-COVID, uh, balancing the uh, zero-COVID policies and manufacture, and resuming manufacture and resume logistics. And uh, so we, we've seen a couple of... Uh, policies coming down from up top. Uh, for example, there are eight uh, cities on the uh, southeast line, along the southeast coast of China, that are now experimental cities. Uh, in, in, in essence, um, the authorities just reduced the number of days for quarantines uh, from 14 to 10. And then we've seen uh, the state council issue documents uh, telling their subordinates to uh, to protect the uh, logistic chain. And then we see the uh, Shanghai authorities coming up with the uh, policies that uh, you just mentioned. I think the authorities are trying to make manufacturing and logistics uh, function, at least in a time like this. But I'm, I'm still not sure how this policy is going to be carried out in a more uh, basic or fundamental units of this administration power. So I... Uh, I, I think it remains to be seen. Mm. Quentin, what do you make of the uh, monetary policy response to this slowdown? There's been a lot of talk from the mainland about uh, more stimulus, trying to offset the decline. But then when it comes to acting, um, the PBOC seems quite reluctant to move, doesn't it? It did cut uh, the reserve requirement ratio uh, by 25 basis points, but economists have been expecting uh, 50. It left its one-year medium lending facility rate on hold. What do you make of this response? I think that's right. The sense in the market is that it is pretty measured. Um, you know, and there's also a question mark, of course, about how effective monetary policy can be at a time like this. I don't think the cost of credit or the quantum of credit is necessarily the limiting factor in the economy at the moment. You know, and so probably for the kind of top. Chinese authorities, the priority first is to bring COVID under control and then address the economic weaknesses. Um, so it's not about kind of pouring stimulus into the market right now. Um, you know, I mean, 
to be fair, it's, it's better than nothing. And we could yet see, I think, some cuts to this medium-term lending facility rate as well. And maybe we would see another triple R cut later in the year. So there is a little bit more room to manoeuvre, but it's not as if um, the People's Bank of China is going to do the heavy lifting here. Mm. And, and what about the global impact of these lockdowns? You've talked about the damage to supply chains. Um, but China um, exports about one third of the world's intermediate goods. This is also a shock for the global economy, isn't it? And also quite inflationary. It would seem to be that way, yes. I mean, the, the global economic picture is very complex at the moment. Of course, I think you referred to this earlier. You know, the World Bank has just cut its global forecasts for this year um, quite severely, um, almost by a percentage point. And so, you know, probably the, the biggest single concern is what's happening with the war in Ukraine. But, of course, it doesn't help with the world's workshop, China, um, struggling with these various kind of logistical problems. And so, uh, you know, that might feed into inflation as well, which is already a massive problem if, the, you know, the supply of goods out of China becomes constrained. Mm. James, we've seen that cut in the World Bank's growth uh, forecast for this year because of the war, uh, the war in Ukraine. Do you think Russia, uh, do you think China could also get dragged into this? Because we have seen more and more warnings now from the US about the consequences if Russia undermines, uh, if China undermines Russian sanctions. Do you think there is a risk uh, that Chinese companies and China itself could get hit with sanctions? And what would that do for the economy? No, I think the, the chances are slim now. I don't think China is really lining up with Russia in that firm of a stance. And uh, uh, I, I think the, the more um, uh, pressing issue is, is what just Quinlin said, is the monetary policy probably will not help much for China's companies right now. And logistics is, is the only concern, or the hold on production is the only concern we, we have. And uh, in terms of the world economy, I think uh, it's going in a downward spiral because uh, Ukraine and Russia, they are the main, <clears throat> main food suppliers for uh, Northern Africa and for a lot of emerging countries. Uh, some of these emerging countries are already in debt, so they cannot pay for higher prices for the fundamentals uh, like, like food and, and energy. So this mm -hmm. has caused some kind of abruption, uh, disruption in their own uh, economy. And uh, coincidentally, some of these countries play a pretty important role in some of the uh, natural resources that they, are, they use to export. So, for example, Peru uh, is pretty big on uh, copper exports. So this uh, all together, the, the uh, paint a picture of a downward spiral, which I don't see is going to end anytime soon. So, Quentin, what, what do you think is going to be the impact of all of this when you put it together on uh, the mainland markets? The, uh, the Shanghai Composite uh, is down 12% so far this year. It's the worst performer in the Asia-Pacific region. If you look at the broader MSCI China index, that's down now 15.5%. Uh, it was down 22% last year. Um, it, it doesn't seem like there's enough going on at the moment to provide much support, is there, for the index? I think that's right. I mean, you could make a sort of contrarian case that a lot of bad news has been priced in already now. You know, we've had a series of regulatory crackdowns. We've had um, kind of global economic slowdown. We have had the shock of the lockdowns within China. Um, you know, many stocks are very modestly priced now, but there isn't yet, uh, as you suggest, a sort of positive catalyst, if you like. And I think Chinese onshore markets are often very responsive to things like big 
stated changes in policy. And at the moment, it's clear that the main priority is bringing COVID under control and not about sort of, uh, you know, notwithstanding a kind of intervention a few weeks ago from you, her, the main policy priority is not about supporting the markets or supporting economic growth at all costs. James, what's your um, outlook for the uh, the local market up on the mainland? Uh, I think I think people are still uh, like we've seen. Uh, people are still uh, trying to figure out what's going on, and uh, we've we've seen cities being locked down. Uh, not just for not just Shanghai, other cities, big cities like Zhengzhou or like uh, Xi'an or like Guangzhou, they've been locked down for at least seven days or five days because of several confirmed cases. And uh, if this is the trend going through all over China, uh, I think the uh, logistics and production uh, problems are going to be more uh, than what we realized right now. And in Shanghai, we think that the situation situation is going to be improving a little bit by the end of the month or uh, latest probably in the first half of May. But in other cities, we we've probably haven't seen the full consequences of lockdowns. So this might be not as um, a, a positive projection for market participants. And uh, this has already, uh, we've, we've already seen what market participants are um, uh, feeling about the, the, the Chinese economy in the stock market. Okay. So this, going forward, I don't, I don't think the, the, the greater China stock market is going to be performing very, very well. Okay, well, thank you both very much. You heard there James Wong, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Lead Securities, Quinton Webb, who's Asia Market Editor at The Wall Street Journal. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Times 8.24. The Japanese yen has fallen against the US dollar for the 12th consecutive day. That's the longest losing streak in at least 50 years. It's down half a percent this morning at uh, 127.05 against the dollar. And yesterday, Bank of Japan Governor Haruhiko Kuroda warned of very rapid moves in the currency but vowed to keep adding monetary stimulus to the economy. On the phone now from Tokyo is Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA. Morning, Nick. Good morning to you. So perhaps you can explain for our listeners what is going on with the yen. Why is it so weak? Sure. The um, the main thing that's been weakening the yen is that uh, U.S. interest rates are going up and uh, Japanese interest rates are shackled at, uh, at zero. That's the main thing. So the the real yield differential is um, is correlating very strongly with the uh, the yen. Um, the other thing that tends to move the yen is the uh, the current account surplus. So um, Perhaps easiest to think of that in terms of the uh, the trade surplus, but it's importing more than it's exporting at the moment for the simple reason that its nuclear power plants are, are switched off, and therefore it's sucking in a certain amount of um, of oil from outside that it wouldn't otherwise be. And the solution to that is switch them back on again. Uh, but we certainly we've had a slide in the yen um, of about ten and a half percent since the uh, the start of the year. Now, obviously, we've got upper house elections in on the 10th of uh, July. So the, uh, common sense and politics are different. Uh, and uh, particularly in this sense, the, uh, the politics is focused on, well, won't this mean increased uh, costs for consumers? And yes, that's true. Uh, that uh, energy added altogether is about 7.1% of the uh, 
the consumer basket. But also, uh, a weaker yen is very good for corporate Japan, which is something that uh, Governor uh, Kuroda, the, the governor of the Bank of Japan, has said repeatedly. So he's backtracked a little bit recently, saying um, that sudden moves are, uh, are not terribly helpful. And that's true. It's really tough for a company to have to handle these massive swings in the currency we get. Uh, but he's certainly not backing off his point that, one, he needs to keep uh, interest rates down, and, two, uh, that a weak yen is actually plus minus positive for the, uh, for the economy. So how much is the Bank of Japan's policy itself contributing to this? Because they're trying to keep the 10-year bond yield at a quarter of a percent when the U.S. 10-year yield is heading very rapidly to to 3%. Is it sustainable, this policy, without completely sacrificing the yen? Well, it's entirely sustainable, but um, there would certainly be a political argument about it. How much does it contribute to it? Well, Currency markets switch from one thing for, uh, uh, to another. So in uh, 16, 17 and 18, then it was the uh, real yield deferential that was, that was really moving the, uh, the currency. And then we went for a couple of years when there was no correlation at all between the two. And now we're back into uh, to that being the primary thing that's, uh, that's moving the currency. Um, he can uh, continue to do it and he continues to feel that... Uh, uh, that low interest rates are the, uh, good for the economy as a whole. I'm not sure that I would agree. I would say uh, corporate Japan is absolutely awash with vastly more cash than is good for it, and households are, are cash rich, and the only people who are short of money is the government, which is a very good place to keep a, a government. But um, but he's holding the uh, the interest rates uh, down. That feels more like religion than it uh, uh, than like science. But uh, that seems to be what will continue while he remains governor of the Bank of Japan, which is about one more year. Could, could this end up, though, being self-defeating and damaging the economy in the end? Because one of the problems with your currency falling is that it erodes, erodes real wages, which in turn dents uh, consumption. So it's, it's going to, at some point, if it's not already, isn't it damaging to the economy? Well, I mean, re- wages have not moved in 30 years. So... In uh, PPP wages in Japan are three percent above where they were in uh, 1993, whereas U.S. wages are uh, uh, 47 percent higher. Um, I think that's got much, much more to do with uh, productivity than it has to do with the uh, the currency. Um, and the, the, the I would say that uh, wage negotiation in Japan is kind of dysfunctional. Um, the uh, the unions are certainly not really pushing for. Uh, of big increases and it's it's a very odd situation when mm. the prime minister has to get involved in in pushing for higher wages and recently offering uh, big tax breaks and even that's not proving uh, enough to get wages up so yes we're going to have a problem this year with um so the, the we're about halfway through wage negotiation um reporting but uh, at the moment it looks like wages up 2.11 percent taking out uh, promotions and seniority, that's just 0.8% increase. Uh, And by the time we get into March, April, then inflation is going to be popping above uh, above 2%. So that's going to be a real discussion. Um, And the Prime Minister did try very hard in in trying to to, uh, help those wage negotiations, but thus far it seems to have failed. So I think the result is going to be that we're going to be looking at... um, at the possibility with a very, very tight uh, labour market of uh, perhaps an increase in job hopping.
Okay, well, Nick, I'd love to talk to you a bit more about this, but sadly we've run out of time. Thank you very much. That's Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Japan right now, the Nikkei 225 is up about uh, two-thirds of 1%. Down in Australia, the ASX 200, also up two-thirds of a percent. The Cosby uh, in South Korea has risen about 0.9% at the open. Does look like, though, the Hang Seng is going to fall here in Hong Kong when markets get going in just under an hour's time. The uh, the futures market's pointing to a decline of about 180 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news is COVID updates with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast uh, for this morning. Going to be cloudy, one or two showers, maximum temperature of about 22 degrees. And then the outlook is it for it to remain cloudy with one or two showers in the next couple of days. Sunny periods on Friday and during the weekend when the weather is going to be hot during the day. Right now, that temperature here in Hong Kong is 20 degrees and it's 86% relative humidity. Just gone 8.31. Here's Andy Shirosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. A tourism professor says Hong Kong should gradually reopen its borders to international travelers to serve as an example to the mainland on how it can control any rise in COVID case numbers. Professor Haiyan Song, the Associate Dean of Polytechnic University's School of Hotel and Tourism Management, says if the SAR opens its international borders first and can prove it can control the pandemic, this will give confidence to mainland tourists. He begins by telling Janice Wong that these eased restrictions will see the gradual recovery of the SAR's tourism sector. I think uh, the initial opening will be uh, very small in terms of numbers, right? So this controlled opening. And uh, uh, if Hong Kong uh, control is uh, cases, uh, uh, number of cases, well, I'm sure China will uh, look at the situation and uh, open uh, uh, its borders uh, to Hong Kong. Uh, but again, I said, you know, it depends on the policy adopted in China, especially the, the zero-case policy. Health officials have reported 613 new COVID cases, a further drop from the day before. There were 13 imported cases, including one picked up at a community testing center 12 days after the patient, a 10-year-old girl, arrived from Canada. She had a low viral load and is thought to be a re-positive case. The hospital authority says another 20 patients with covid have died. Overseas now, Ukraine says Russia has launched its anticipated large-scale offensive in the east of the country. In a televised address, President Volodymyr Zelensky said he could confirm that the battle for the Donbass region had begun. A very large part of the Russian army is now concentrated on this offensive. No matter how many of the Russian troops are there, we will fight, we will defend ourselves, and we will do everything that we must to keep what's Ukrainian. Earlier, the Secretary of Ukraine's National Security Council said Russian forces had tried to break through nearly the entire front lines in Donetsk, Luhansk and Kharkiv regions. Yesterday, nine people died in the Russian bombardment of several cities, most of them in the western city of Lviv. President Putin has said sanctions imposed on Russia have had the opposite effect, causing instead the deterioration of Western economies. Speaking on the state of Russia's domestic economy, Mr. Putin said inflation was stabilizing and retail demand in the country had normalized. But the West, he said, had scored an own goal.
We can already confidently say that such a policy towards Russia has failed. The strategy of economic blitzkrieg has failed. Moreover, the sanctions had an effect on the initiators themselves. I'm talking about the growth of inflation and unemployment, the deterioration of economic dynamics in the U.S. and European countries. You're listening to the news on RTHK.